party season is over in terms of outdoor parties, but if you're throwing a party at your house, and maybe it's a birthday party, a casual get-together with friends, or it's a, a summer barbecue, what's the one thing that you personally feel like must be there in order to make it a real party? Cake, people. This is not a right or wrong answer. Maybe you've got something else. Maybe you'd say it's not a party unless my father-in-law brings his potato salad, right? Maybe that's it. Or, or maybe you'd say it's not a party unless there are those uh, Puerto Rican rice and beans. Or it's not a party until the beat drops and the music starts. The Christian music, of course. We're keeping it clean. It's Sunday. And we should keep it clean every day, right? We're believers. Maybe it's your best friend. You'd say, for me, it's not a party until my best friend shows up. This morning in the third message in our series, Through the Gospel of John, we're calling Life in His Name, we're going to be digging into the first of several signs in the Gospel of John. These signs, John calls them very specifically. He doesn't call them miracles. He doesn't call them powerful works. He calls them very specifically signs. These signs are miracles that Jesus did, but John uses this word because he wants to show us that these signs point to something more. They point to a revelation of Jesus and his character and his purpose. And Jesus did this first sign at a party, at a wedding. But we shouldn't think this was a cheap trick as if Jesus was just randomly showing off how powerful, how cool he was, the kinds of things that he could do. In fact, the Gospel of John is very specific. We won't find Jesus doing miracles for miracles' sake. And while his miracles will often help people, they're never only for that purpose. John uses the miracles of Christ to point to something bigger. And the miracles John records always reveal something deeper about Jesus and his purposes. They're signs. They point something to something beyond the immediate miracle to something bigger about Jesus. And this first one he does, this first sign is a doozy. Let's read about it in John 2, 1 through 11. It says this, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, they then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The sign that this passage gives is that Jesus came to make the things that had been broken by sin new, which means that we should believe Jesus for renewal. That's what I hope you'll get out of the the message and the passage today is that you should believe Jesus for renewal to make you new. Where do we get that from here? Other than the fact that, you know, he made wine so they didn't run out at this wedding party. Where does that come from? Look at how the passage 
opens. It says this, on the third day. Third day from what? Well, if we go back to John 1.29, we read that that verse starts out the next day. Now down to John 1.35, it starts out the next day. Now to John 1.43, the next day. So we have to count the day before, John 1.29, because the word next implies that something came before it. If you count the day before, you've got one day, two days, three days, four days, three days later. How many days is that? Seven days. Jesus was at this wedding on the seventh day from when John started to record his public ministry. John seems to be very particular about recording this. Why bother telling us it was the third day unless there's some significance to it? Why even mention it unless there's something more? What else happened in seven days? Do you remember John 1, 1 through 3? John began his gospel this way. He said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. What does that bring to mind? Creation. And how long does Genesis 1 record that God took to create the universe? Seven days and so, Jesus is here at this on the seventh day. It is no coincidence that John is telling us that Jesus was at this wedding on the seventh day. He's making a bold theological point. He's saying that the word who created the world had now come into the world to recreate it, to renew it, to make it new. When the world had run out, when it was empty, when Judaism had run out and it was barren and dry, when there was nothing left, when they had run out of what they thought made them joyful and happy and gave them hope and their hope for the future was gone, God the Word stepped in to his own creation to make it new again. The creator has entered the world to renew it. You should believe Jesus for renewal. Let's take a closer look at what that means. Have you ever been to a wedding where something really embarrassing or awkward happened that you thought, this might not bode well for the new couple? Ever been to one like that? Hopefully not. I, I remember I was at a wedding once where the bride was an hour late and no one could get a hold of her. We didn't know where she was, what was going on. We were all wondering if this was gonna turn out to be a really bad day. And thankfully, she had just been delayed in her preparation process. I guess it takes a while, I wouldn't know. And I think her phone had died in the process so nobody was able to contact her. And when she did arrive, we were able to go ahead with the ceremony, which was a good thing. In John 2, we read about a wedding where they ran out of wine, and it's, it's a bit hard to imagine, but wedding celebrations at the time could last several days to a week, and the, the honor and shame that was attached to these events was pretty significant. To run out of wine would have been considered shameful, not only to the family, but somewhat of like a, a bad sign for the future of this couple. It would have kind of tainted how people thought about them in their small communities, and it would have cast doubt on their future and their place in that community, so it was no small thing for them to run out of wine. And we don't know for sure why Jesus' mom was so concerned since the wedding was near her hometown, was, was near where they had lived anyway, it was near Nazareth, then perhaps she was related to the family. It's very possible or she was on some kind of planning committee, but whatever the connection, she was concerned for what it meant for the family and for this new couple. And so she came to Jesus. 
Now, since Joseph, Mary's husband, isn't mentioned in the Gospels after the birth stories of Jesus, it's likely that Mary was a widow and Jesus grew up without an earthly father for at least part of his childhood. The Bible not only says that Joseph was a carpenter, but Mark actually describes people saying that Jesus was a carpenter himself. And as Jesus grew up, his mother probably relied heavily on him for the things that she needed in life. She had learned to turn to him in matters of of need or crisis. And there's no indication that when Mary came to Jesus, she expected him to work a miracle. In fact, the, the gospel says this is the first sign Jesus had done. We shouldn't think that Jesus, as he was growing up, was you know, turning bricks into bread or something like that, and that was his childhood. That's not what we read about. That's not the indication the scripture gives. Mary had just learned to rely on Jesus, and so she comes to, to help to him to help solve this problem, and she's asking for him to help. Jesus' answer may seem harsh. He says, you know, woman, what does this have to do with me? But it wasn't really harsh. It was simply the statement of fact, and it wasn't an uncommon way of addressing a woman at the time. And and in his answer, just like in this story, there are two layers to what he says. The problem really wasn't his to solve. But more than that, it wasn't yet his hour. And what he meant by hour, what we'll find throughout the Gospel of John when Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. His time hadn't come for him to reveal who he was and the power with which he came to bring God's people back to him and to bring the world to the Father. That would be a moment when God's great power and love was displayed through the cross and the resurrection and it wasn't time for that. It's worth noting that while Jesus will end up solving this problem, he doesn't do it for his mother and he doesn't do it for the reason she wanted him to do it either. And that's important because many, especially people within the Catholic tradition, cite this passage to demonstrate that Mary has a special intercessory function with Jesus. The thought is that you can ask ask Mary to go to Jesus and ask Jesus for you, and because she is his mother, she can get him to do what she wants. And so if you'll ask her, she's a bit more compassionate and helpful than Jesus. Maybe he's a little too busy, something like that. And she can go to Jesus on your behalf. But that's actually the opposite of what John's story highlights. John seems to suggest by Jesus' answer, the fact that he doesn't call her mother, but he calls her this generic term, woman. He refers to her as if she was just any other lady. What What John's gospel seems to suggest is that Mary had no more standing in this instance before Jesus than you or I have. She asks for something as his mother. Jesus is now, though, entering his purpose here on earth where his goal transcends whatever familial pull she felt she had with him. As as D.A. Carson put it, in short, in chapter two, verse three, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In chapter two, verse five, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. Jesus' purpose was bigger than even his mother could comprehend. And if you've come from a history or background of Catholicism, this may be important for you to consider. You are not multiple steps removed from Jesus. You don't approach him through a mediator. Jesus is the mediator. You can't get what you want out of Jesus by threatening to tell his mommy on him. That won't work. She was a woman of great faith, but that's just it. She was a woman of faith. Her relationship with Jesus ultimately came down to trusting Jesus 
just like yours and mine, must come down to trusting Jesus. And that leads us to the heart of this first point. You can have a relationship rather than rituals. You can have a relationship rather than rituals. John was careful to note in this story of turning water into wine that the vessels Jesus used to turn water into wine were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, of course, Jesus could have called for whatever other vessels he wanted. Obviously, there was wine served at this wedding celebration, and he could have said, let's refill those bottles, or let's refill those jars. Why didn't he just do that? But John calls out, he used the Jewish jars that were for the custom of purification, probably stone jars that were used for the custom of hand washing. And you can see the extreme to which the Jewish religious leaders had taken this in passages like Mark 7, 1 through 4, where it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe. such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. These weren't sanitary guides. Look, if if you go to the grocery store and you come home, wash your hands before you eat. That's good hygiene, right? But that's not what they were doing. They were not washing because they knew about germs because guess what? They didn't know about germs. They were washing because they thought it had some religious significance. And so they had all these pots there for all the people who would come to this banquet so they could all wash up and they could be religiously clean by washing their hands. And whoever did this first, whoever, I, whoever had this idea first, maybe they had a really good, sincere heart and they did it with all the right motives, but eventually this hand washing just became an empty ritual. Notice that these six water jars were empty. If they weren't, Jesus wouldn't have had to instruct people to go fill them. And this isn't a small detail in the story. Like the wine that had run out, the empty jars represented the emptiness of the Jewish religion at the time. For many, it had become ritual, it had become empty, and even for the most faithful and sincere believers, it wasn't enough. But Jesus has the jars filled to the brim, and then he changes the water into wine. Many prophecies in the Old Testament use wine as an image to describe a future time of God's blessing. For instance, Joel 3.18 says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. With this miracle, Jesus was claiming to come and to bring blessing and renewal to what had become empty and dry. He was going to fulfill the hopes of the Jewish people. He was going to fulfill their laws, their feasts, their traditions. He was not going to just refill them. He was going to surpass them with something better. In John chapter 3, he will tell Nicodemus that he can be born of the Spirit by faith in him. In chapter 4, he'll tell the Samaritan woman at the well that soon people won't worship in Jerusalem at the temple. They won't worship anywhere in particular necessarily, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. What does all of this mean? It means that Jesus wants to renew our rituals and religion. It's possible that for any of us to, to fall into routines that were once significant to us, 
but now they're just things we do because we think we're supposed to keep doing them. We've fallen out of actually honoring God and loving God with a sincere heart, with our hearts and minds engaged in what we're doing into simply going through the motions because we believe this is what we are supposed to do Maybe your, your ritual is that you are coming to church but your ears aren't really open. You don't expect that Jesus will actually speak to you through his word when you come and it's just something you do because your wife makes you or you feel like it's a religious thing that maybe keeps you in good with God. It's earning you some kind of points. Your ritual could be a particular prayer that you pray before a meal or before you go to bed, but there's no more life in it. You only do it because you think you're supposed to. Your ritual may be that, that you, you say the Christian cliches and you, you try to look good when you're at church on Sunday and you try to sound good to other Christians, but you are really feeling very emptied inside your heart's a bit of a desert right now. Your ritual could be that you love to critique churches. You love to critique theology. I've met a lot of people like this. They are expert complainers and they suppose that they have superior theology and their theology excuses a critical attitude. I'm not telling you to check your brain at the door. I hope that when you come to our services, they minister to your heart and to your head. But if you show up with the intention to find something wrong with how things are done, with what is said, with what is sung, you inevitably will be able to find something wrong. If that is your purpose in coming to church, you'll find something, I guarantee it. But I wonder if in your attitude, you'll be able to hear the voice of Jesus who is present with his people when we meet together and worship him and hear his word together. Maybe for you, your ritual is part of another religion. You're part of another denomination where the focus is on works that please God and you try to fulfill his requirements, but it feels empty. Maybe your ritual is doing devotions. Something as life-giving as reading God's word and prayer has become an empty desert because you're only doing it because you think you're supposed to not because you believe that you can meet Jesus when you do. If your worship has become mere ritual, the good news of Jesus is that he has come to renew you. If you're conscious of your sin before God, but you can't get rid of your guilt no matter how hard you try, no matter what ritual you've participated in, it can't alleviate your guilty conscience. The good news of Jesus is that he goes beyond ritual because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where has your worship of God become ritual? The good news of the gospel is that God is not distant and you don't serve him with empty ritual. Here is the son of God at a wedding. Here is God in the flesh right in the middle of ordinary life. The party didn't really start until Jesus got there. Not even his mother knew who he really was, but there, wa that there he was beginning to reveal his identity to his disciples. And you and I, we have the privilege of hearing this, and if we believe, we have life. We have a living relationship with God, not a God who's distant, but a God who is near, who is present. And I would encourage you, believer, that you would examine your life and your worship. Has it become ritual? 
Has it become a mere going through the motions to try to cleanse what's on the exterior without any understanding that when I come to Jesus, he doesn't just care about what's on the outside, but it's what's on the inside that matters to him and that he's the one who can make what's on the inside new. He can renew. He can renew your ritual and change it into relationship. He can renew your heart and make it right with him. He can renew your heart and the things that you've been doing merely out of, out of just habit and enable those things to be reinvested with the life that only he can give. It wasn't just the jars of purification that were empty. We've already seen that the wedding had run out of wine. And the setting of this sign adds extra significance because in the Bible, weddings carry a, a really big significance. They were symbols. They were symbols of a, a future time when God would be with his people and we would fulfill all of his promises that he had made. You see this in places like Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, where it says, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In Hosea 2, 19 to 20, a wedding represents a time of justice that will last forever. In the New Testament, Revelation 19, 9 indicates that there's a future wedding for those who are blessed by God. It says, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And by turning water into wine, Jesus was claiming to be the one who will bring about this marriage between God and his people. This sign says that God's blessing, his peace, his justice, and joy are all being provided through Jesus. Let me see if I can help you understand the significance of this a little bit more. Remember that there are layers to the story. John is aware that as his characters speak, you as the reader, you know a bit more about the story than they were aware of. That you probably have maybe read it once or twice or you've heard it before and that as you've read it, you've come to know things that even his characters in the story weren't aware of. And so when Jesus' mother comes to him and, he's, and she says, they have no wine, from her perspective, she means exactly that. They've run out of wine. They've run out of a beverage. But now you know some of the symbolism that is taking place. I've shared with you about the wedding. We talked about the symbolism of wine from the Old Testament in God's word. We've learned about the Jewish water pots. And you probably are aware of how the story ends with Jesus' death and his resurrection as well. It's a part, all of that is a part of this sign. And so when Mary says, they have no wine, we hear a deeper truth. The joy has gone. The hope for God's promises has run out. The expectation for the future has been depleted. And what Mary speaks at this wedding, I think that many people hear echoing in their own hearts, the wine has run out. It's empty. It's barren. Maybe you feel that. You feel empty. Mary's words could be spoken over your life. He has no joy. She has no peace. He thought he found purpose, but that purpose has been drained. What she was living for has all dried up. Perhaps you've given up hope. You tried religion, and the, rit the rituals left you feeling empty, but maybe with a little bit more guilt than before and a lot more disappointment than before. If your wine has run out, I have good news for you today. Jesus can turn water into wine. 
He's come to restore purpose. He's come to restore meaning. He comes to restore joy. He is life and blessing that comes through God. And if your wine has run out, if you've used it all up, the promises of life seem empty to you. Put your faith in Christ. He will make you new. You can receive true joy by believing in him. He will fill your life with purpose again. The peace, love, and blessing that you've been looking for elsewhere, Jesus has in abundance. I mean, think about it. Here he fills up six stone water pots. He made somewhere between 180 and 100, 120 and 180 gallons of wine with this miracle. He's got an abundance of what you lack. And perhaps you think Christianity is dull. Christianity will steal your joy. Maybe that's the, how it's been presented to you. You've looked at, at the rituals some people seem to be stuck in, and you think, no thank you. You've watched TV programs or listened to YouTube know-it-alls who tell you that Christians are backwards and restrictive. But here, in this story, you read about a Jesus who shows up at a wedding celebration, and he turns water into wine. Don't misunderstand me, I'm not making a joke about drunkenness or something like that, but the scripture itself uses weddings and wine as symbols of the kind of life and the kind of blessing and the fullness of joy that God intends for his people. So this sign means that Jesus is the one who provides those things. And if you trust Jesus, you won't find yourself, uh, uh, someone, you won't find in Jesus, rather, someone who restricts your joy, but someone who gives you abundant joy. Believers, are we living with the joy of our Savior? Perhaps this is the question we ought to ask. We have abundant life, according to the scripture. We have a fullness of life. There are so many who do not have that, They are looking for things to fill them in places that can never fill them and they will just drain them further and further. Our culture and our politicians step into the fray of people's sinful lives with solutions that cannot do anything to bring them real life. Corporations vie for their attention to try to feed their addictions, to turn a profit off of the things that they are addicted to, trying to satisfy themselves. They're offered more sin as a solution to their emptiness and to their sin issues. And yet here we are, and Jesus produces an abundance of joy and of life and of peace and of hope and of stability in those who come to him and trust him, so much so that we can offer to them what they don't have, their solutions are like pouring sand in a desert and thinking it will refresh them, but it cannot. We have something so precious, but we so often take it for granted and we forget the precious wine of God's spirit, his presence and his joy, the real meaning and hope that we have for the future. And since Jesus has it in such abundance, should we not share it? It's so easy to overlook the emptiness of those around you. But if you listen carefully, maybe as you're walking through the Big E over the next couple of weeks, you can pay attention as you walk by the beer gardens, or you can pay attention as you you walk by the places where people are seeking joy, and you can hear Mary crying out in those places, they've run out of wine, there's nothing here, it's 
empty. They're left void, and they're trying to pour more of what left them empty in the first place in to fill that void. But you, believer, you've got a fullness of life. Should we not share that with those who are perishing, trying to restore themselves with the very things that left them empty in the first place? They're looking to the bottom of a bottle for joy. They're trying to find identity without Christ. They're addicted and broken and hurting just as we once were, but Jesus filled us, and now we have an abundance that will never, ever run out. Should we not share it? Such joy must be shared. I hope it has been your experience with Christ as it has been mine, that at moments in your life where you felt like you had reached an emptiness, you found that the bottom of the barrel wasn't there. Someone had removed the bottom, and there was a depth there that you didn't know existed yet, that you could go further and deeper into the love of Christ that sustains you, that upholds you, that gives joy, that gives hope. There are too many times in my life to recount where I felt despondent, where I felt like my hope was beginning to run out, where frustration or dryness I felt like would take over. And there at Jesus' feet I discovered that Jesus doesn't run out of wine, but he's got more. And if he doesn't run out for you, Shouldn't you pour that wine out for others? Shouldn't we pour it out for others? You should believe Jesus for renewal because you can have relationship rather than rituals and you can receive true joy. Now we come to my favorite part of the story. When the servant took some of the wine to the master of the feast and he tasted it, the master of the the feast calls the groom and says to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It makes sense that you'd serve the good wine first before people are full and their senses aren't as sharp. What the master of the feast said is not just a passing comment, though. It's an indication of how God does things and what Jesus was there to do Some of the religious leaders of the time, particularly the Sadducees, had so ritualized religion that it was dead. They'd hollowed it out to the point that they didn't believe in the resurrection or in spiritual beings, and basically their hope was just that they had to squeeze all they could out of life currently. Others had put their hopes in a Messiah who would come and crush the Roman Empire, but Jesus came to do something that exceeded all of those expectations, no matter what they were. And, and I believe that this miracle is a sign that points toward the attitude that those who follow Jesus ought to have as we serve him. Because again, John loves to layer meaning on top of meaning so that his characters say something that has an immediate, obvious sense to it, but it also has a much deeper meaning. Look at John eleven forty nine to 52 as an obvious example because John calls this one out for us. He doesn't want us to miss it. It says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas didn't know that Jesus' death would would mean salvation for our lives and our souls. 
He didn't know what Jesus' death would really mean. He was just being an expedient ruler trying to keep the political peace that he had tried for the last 10 years to put together. But there was a layer of meaning to his statement that John highlighted that he didn't even understand. I think that's what John 2.10 is as well. Yes, literally, the best wine was served last at this feast, but he didn't know it was because of Jesus. In his words, the words of the the master of the feast come as a statement, not just about the wine, but about the character of God and his plan. So I think we can rightly say that with Jesus, the best is always yet to come. He gave the law and was now surpassing the law. He set up the temple and he was now going beyond the temple. He made a way of sacrifice, but would now be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He set up the high priest, but would so far surpass the high priest that no mediator other than himself was needed between God and you. He gives those who believe in him new life, but when he returns, he will resurrect you physically and make a new heavens and a new earth. He reigns right now in heaven, but when he returns to reign on earth, we will reign with him forever and ever. He says at Revelation 21:4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. At Revelation 2, 5, 21, Behold, I am making all things new. In heaven, God will provide a place that is always new in which we are never despondent. We're never in despair. We will never exhaust his creativity, his love, or his goodness. There will always be more. The best will always be ahead of us. And I think that what John, the apostle, wants us to hear in the words of this master of the banquet when he says, you have saved the best until last, are these words that with Jesus, the best is always on the way. There is always something more he is doing. When John recorded the words of the master of the feast at a wedding in Cana, he was not remarking on the wine, but on the character of God revealed through Jesus. Because with Jesus, the best is always yet to come, and therefore we always have hope. This does not lead us into a theology in which we deny or try to avoid suffering presently, but one in which we say, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. You may be tempted to think that this is just wishful thinking. I disagree. This is the kind of hope that moves us. When Jesus' disciples saw this, they believed in him. And they didn't just believe that he had power to make wine out of water, but that he was doing something new, even if they couldn't understand everything that he was doing yet. And their faith moved them. They followed Jesus. So with us, we're not saved by our works. We are saved through faith in Christ. But the faith that Jesus produces is a faith that works. It's a faith that looks forward and leans ahead in hope and follows Jesus. This kind of hope gives us the confidence to live for Christ, to stand for what is right, to overcome sin, to leave the things of this world behind us. It spurs us into our mission that Jesus has left us. It can prevent us from division and it can keep us from despair. Perhaps Your trials have made the world feel to you bleak and lifeless. Trust Jesus. He always has something better coming. Maybe you've been waiting and waiting for something to change and it still hasn't. 
Don't stop trusting Christ and serving him because the best is still yet to come. Maybe you've given up on some ministry dream that God put in your heart because of delays and disappointments. Take heart with Jesus. The best is still yet to come. And I believe this for our church as well. I can't say with confidence that, that what I think of as the best is what's going to happen. I can't say with confidence that what I would interpret as the best is what God will do in the future. I don't know what's in store, but I believe this. Faith in Christ would cause us to push ahead with self-sacrificial determination in faith and unity because for the church of Jesus Christ, the best is always yet to come. Though we might suffer, though it might become difficult, though it could be hard, though there will be discouragement, we look forward and we say, with Jesus, the best is yet to come. Everybody else is doing their best to get drunk and forget so that they, when the hard times come, don't have to face them with any sobriety. But Christian, we face life with a sobriety with a clarity of mind and purpose, knowing that even in our suffering, that suffering does not take away from the fact of faith that the best is yet to come in Jesus. He always saves the best for last. And the good news with Jesus is that because he is God, he never runs out of the best. And so the best is always yet to come. You should believe Jesus for renewal, not just now, but when you go home, when you're in your private prayer time, when you face trials, it's not a party until Jesus shows up. And thankfully, Jesus has shown up. And by faith, we know that he's here now. He's with his church, by his presence, by his spirit. And I wanna give you a chance, an opportunity to express that faith this morning. Perhaps you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus yet. And what I need you to know this morning is more than just Jesus can do uh, great things in your life, that he can give joy and abundance of life. I need you to know why. Because this miracle, this sign, points to something greater. It's, it's not just a sign for its set, the sake of itself. Jesus, you'll notice, said, my hour has not yet come, meaning that even this sign was not the greatest thing Jesus would do. The greatest thing Jesus would do is that he would die on a cross for your sin and then on the third day God would raise him up again. Jesus, the Lamb of God, took away your sin when he died on the cross and if you'll come to him in faith, you'll receive forgiveness. You'll receive his mercy and you'll receive a fullness of joy. Listen, I don't wanna preach to you a pie in the sky Christianity that says if you'll just give your life to Jesus, you'll go home and your bank account will be full and your problems will be gone because that's not usually how God works. But I can tell you from experience and from the testimony of hundreds, probably thousands of other Christians that I've talked to throughout the course of my life that what Jesus does is that he steps into your life 
and things that are more significant than the dollar amount in your bank account or the problems that you have at home, the things that speak to the deep places of your heart where you don't have hope and where you feel empty and where there's nothing left and where you have tried and tried to save yourself. And maybe you've even from time to time turned to rituals. Maybe you've tried other religions. Maybe you've tried some kind of dead form of dry Christianity. Maybe you've tried crystals and the universe and all that stuff, and you have been left feeling empty. What I can tell you about Jesus is this, that when you come to him by faith and you believe in him, he fills you. And it doesn't necessarily fix all the external stuff immediately, though he'll begin to work on that, I assure you. But what he does is he fills you. And he gives you a new life that starts in here, the place that matters the most and that he cares about the most. And yes, it'll begin to seep out. It'll have an effect in your life. But what I want you to know today is that if you're feeling empty, you can come to the one who will fill you with joy because he died for you and God raised him from the dead. He does not offer you life through a party. He offers you life because he died and rose again. And because he is your creator and stepped into his creation to come and recreate, he can recreate you. He has the authority and power to do it. If you don't have faith in Christ and your life is on empty, you are drained, you are gone. Mary's statement applies to you. I've run out of wine today. You can know the presence of Jesus in your life. He makes all things new, including you, if you'll trust him. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, you've never confessed your sin, believed on him for new life, trusted your life to him and said, my life is empty, I need new life. Today he's here to do a miracle in your life, a miracle even greater than turning water into wine. He wants to bring a dead man or woman back to real life with relationship in God today. If that's you, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses, your sins. You're dead in a life that is empty and you wanna know the fullness of Christ today by putting your faith in him. I'm gonna ask you to do something simple but bold so that I can pray with you just as a first step of faith and confession. If you just lift up your hand, if that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus by faith and today you wanna begin that. Thank you, sir. Is there anybody else? You don't have that relationship with Jesus by faith and you wanna begin. You wanna put your trust in him today. We're gonna pray. My words can't save you, Jesus can though. And so I just wanna help you express your faith in him. And so as I pray, would you make this prayer yours? Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I confess to you my life is on empty. Lord, I, I've been trying to fill it myself and I just keep getting emptier and emptier if that's even possible. It doesn't seem to be working, but today I've heard of your son Jesus and I believe. I believe he died for me I believe you raised him from the dead and I want new life in him. I've tried to create my own life and I can't. And so I come to you, my creator and savior, and I ask you, forgive me, save me. I put my hope in Jesus. Would you fill me with that new life that I need today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, if you prayed that prayer, in just a moment, we're going to have some people available to pray with you. I'd encourage you before you leave, come and pray with one of them. Come and speak to one of them. I'm going to ask right now if our prayer partners would go ahead. Prayer partners, any pastors, deacons, deaconesses who are present, if you'd make your way forward because we want to take a few moments just to pray with people here at the end of service. So prayer partners, if you'd come now. Christian, I want to speak to you for a moment. Maybe you're feeling a little bit dry yourself. That happens from time to time, doesn't it? 
that we sometimes feel dry in our lives. We feel like we're moving toward empty. Maybe uh, circumstances in our lives have just caused us to feel that way. Maybe we haven't had our eyes on Jesus as they should be, and so we're not focused on him and trusting him to fill us, and we've been looking to other things, and so we feel empty. Maybe our religious actions have become ritual, and we're no longer experiencing that relationship with Jesus. Maybe there's a circumstance in your life that's caused you to just say, I don't, just don't know if I can have hope anymore in this. Today I want to invite you. This is not a confession of you saying, I'm a terrible person, I'm on empty, I don't believe in Jesus. You're not saying any of that if you come to pray this morning, okay? I want to make that very clear. But if you're just simply saying, I want to be renewed. I need Jesus to renew me, to refresh me, to refill me today, to restore my hope that the best is yet to come, to renew the way that I relate to him in my prayer and in my reading of his word. I need him to renew me in how I think about him. I need him to make me new. Jesus makes people new. We don't. We just want to pray with you because we both believe in Jesus and that he makes people new. And so if you need that in your life, I'm going to ask you, even before we close, this is a little different, but right now, would you just come, even now, if you need Jesus to make you new, to renew your heart, if you need renewal in your life for any of the reasons we've talked about this morning, Jesus is the source of that renewal. If you want to ask him to renew you, come down and find a place of prayer this morning. Go ahead and come. If you need, if you need to lay down religious rituals and believe in him for a deepening relationship, come and let him make you new. If you need true joy that will, can be renewed in your life, would you come and would you seek him for it? If you need renewal of hope, would you come? Even right now, Can I be honest, congregation, I have a really hard time believing that in a group this size, there's one person who feels like they need renewal. And I'm not calling on you to come up here to satisfy me. I'm just saying, if you wanna have an act of faith this morning that says, I feel dry and empty, and I need Jesus to renew me, why wait? Why say I'll do it later? Why not come and make a place of prayer right now and seek the Lord? He's available. Jesus is available to make you new, not because of where we are or who I am or who these prayer partners are, because Jesus is available. Why wait? If that's you, would you come and would you just seek the Lord? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We wait on you today because we need renewal in our lives and in our church. Lord, we confess that sometimes 